0: Hi, this is
1: Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right
2: here. Laisha
1: Tyler. Tron Corquest. Fred Armisen.
0: Fritz Paul.
1: Javier Munoz, Seth
2: Mike. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the TalkHouse Podcast.
0: Ow! Hey Hey, TalkHouse listeners, this is executive editor Josh Modell. This week, we're resurfacing an episode that originally ran in May of 2020. Unlike most talkhouse podcast episodes, which feature two or more creative folks in conversation, this one is mostly just one guy talking, Joe Talbot of the band Idols. It was recorded in front of a live audience in Glasgow just before the pandemic hit, and it's a fascinating look at an incredible artist. Talbot is a guy who's unafraid to put it all out there, in both interviews and in his music. Speaking of music, part of the reason we're re-promoting this episode this week is that Idols just released another incredible album. Crawler is the British band's fourth, and it's unsurprisingly being met with pretty ecstatic reviews. Check out this fascinating chat with Joe and a live audience and have a great Thanksgiving.
1: All right. So John's
3: going to uh, take up his microphone round and uh, whatever you want to ask
2: Joe, John's going to bring the microphone to you. So it's a bit like being at school. If you just put your hand up, no. <laughs> But I'll take the easy one first, the closest.
3: Hi, Joe. All right. I can't understate the impact you've had on my life because I've got two mental ginger daughters and one of the very few things
2: that they agree on is their love of idols. So, oh, any, magic. Any, so anytime, time a battle kicks off in my house, the only thing I need to say is, what would Joe do?
1: And that <laughs> solves it. The, the, the question I have for you is... Um, The remixing that's done under the idol's name, so the Metronomy track... Oh,
3: yeah. ...and the Melt Yourself Down track... Yeah. ...that are remixed under the idol's name. How does that come about, and who's actually doing that?
1: Uh, At the moment, it's Bowen. That's the the pants guy. To say... He's... um, He's a brilliant mind, and also one of the reasons why we will never be taken seriously as a band. He's a fucking prick. But I love him. Um, so yeah, he, he started out, we met because he was a techno DJ and I was um, kind of hip hop DJ. I think I was hip hop DJ at the time. I was doing it like indie nights as well. Um, and a, a promoter friend of mine, uh, of ours in, introduced us. So we started the band and then as we've gone on, we've always talked about doing more together that's like production led, which is why Bowen and I kind of took the steering wheel on this last album in writing a lot of it with mixing and production in mind. So he's gone on ahead, because he, he knows how to remix and stuff already. I'm actually in the process of learning. I've got a mate of mine doing lessons once a week on Ableton and stuff. But yeah, so it comes about where people ask you to remix, and now we've had three months off, Bones had the time to do it, and then hopefully, him and I are gonna start doing stuff together soon. I'm just a bit behind on the learning process. He's done a really good job. The good thing about the remixes are with Bowen is that we had conversations about what he wanted them to sound like as remixes and what he's made and what he articulated are really close, which I think is fucking great considering they're his first two remixes so. carries over the ethos of idols without actually sounding exactly like it yeah well that's we what we want to do with remixing and uh we're going to try and remix the, the, this album ourselves as in do like a remix a live remixing and tour that our artistic language is something that we've learned together the five of us is that we find that violence is paramount to our language and violence isn't necessarily punching someone violence can be a violent brushstroke or a word that has a lot of frictives in it, or the tempo of a song can be violent, the bass can sound violent. There's a lot of ways in which we find violence is a beautiful way of cutting through what we're living in right now as people. And with anything we do, whether it's a T-shirt or an album cover or a remix, a song, a feature on someone else's album, it's important that we stay within our own language and try and sound like idols, because it's who we are, you know, it's not a brand. It's just we found a way of articulating who we are as a collective of friends, you know? Yeah, that's Bowen, in all his glory. Thank you.
2: Oh man. Uh, I've seen some uh, interviews with you fairly recently where you talk about Grayson Perry's The Descent of Man, yeah. and how that's kind of influenced some of your work. I was just wondering if uh, there's any other like, books or authors that have had that kind of influence on, on your work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Only joking. So, yeah, uh, I, I was a late reader. I didn't start reading until I was about 20. So, I had to do that catch up thing where you read, like, On the Road, Catcher in the Rye all the books that you're supposed to read when you're 15. But the beauty of reading on the road when you're 24 is that you don't feel like you need to go travelling and find yourself. You just realise it's a good book. Um, influences, though, I think, book-wise... At the moment, I mean, there's no novels that have, have really affected me in that way. Like poetry, like Sylvia Plath and things like that. They affect me, and I go away, and I, I feel like they've kind of help me transcend into their world a bit, for a bit. But that's all it is. It's like a beautiful thing that someone else has made. Whereas non-fiction really influences my work because I can then take those facts and make them my lies. Do you know what I mean? I can express, because I can connect on those things. I'll be more specific. So with Grayson Perry's Descent of Man, which was a big influence, it wasn't a big influence in terms of what I was writing about, but it helped me articulate. The beautiful thing about Grayson Perry's book is that he has a simplicity to what he says around the concept of masculinity. Because It's not toxic masculinity, it's just masculinity, which is often toxic. When it becomes pressures on how to behave, and if you're not, then you're a bad so-and-so, then it is toxic. But he just explained it in a way that encouraged me and helped me articulate it myself. That's where Samaritans came from, was being able to kind of sum something up and be as concise as possible within a three and a half minute popular music song. Books that have really helped me and influenced my writing are things that realign me. I try and use our music as a a window onto me and a mirror onto you as you listen, as a dialogue, I'm just showing you what my life is. And hopefully you can reflect on that and not see it as me trying to tell you how to live your life. But in the projection of how I live my life, you see that comparison as a way of actually seeing how you are living yours. That's the dialogue. I'm not on a soapbox. I'm not, I am on a stage. And I have got a microphone. But it's not a soapbox. It's supposed to be a window onto who I am. It's never going to be completely true, because that's impossible. But it can be... I think it can be sincere, and I think that's all I can be. That's as close as I'll get to the truth is, is through sincerity. Like, my, my motives are there. I want to be true, so I'm giving it my best shot. But at the moment, I'm reading a book called The Power of Now which is a book about spirituality and enlightenment. But the basis on that book, and what I'm really working on at the moment through cognitive behavioral therapy and reading books on spirituality and mindfulness, is focusing on the present and understanding the past is just a bank of memories in your head. And it warps and changes. All your experiences that you have and you remember aren't what they actually were. All you have... And the only thing you can do is be now and make that as poignant and as beautiful as you can. And the more of the past you carry with you and the more shame you carry with you, the less present you can be now. The more you're worried about the future, the less present you can be now. So, it's a very deep book. Um, But, thank you. But it's helping me be present, and, and it's helping me with these Q&As and things like that, because I'm not trying to get anything out of this other than right now. When you ask me a question, I answer it. I'm not trying to, trying to hold this idea of who I am, I'm just being me. And then afterwards, I'll forget it and <laughs> lie to the next man. But yeah, so um, nonfiction really helps me, because it helps me, and then I can be who I am, on record, you know? Thank you.
2: I know that in album one, you were kind of influenced by other music you were listening to, and in album two it was more cathartic. So I'm just, I hope it's not too much to pry, but what was the influence behind album, well, I know it's not out yet, but what's the influence behind album three? If you don't mind me asking. (laughs) <laughs> I do sorry <laughs> no I do
1: well actually um, without I don't need to apologise you're wrong um, album one Brutalism as it's called wasn't necessarily about influences from other music before Brutalism our two EPs we were kind of fumbling around with who we were. And as anyone here who writes or makes paintings or whatever, to create your own artistic language takes time. And the more you do, the more you learn about yourself, the more you learn about yourself, the more fluent you become in reflection and expression. That's how artistic language is developed and that's how you learn. With that, you absorb all the shit you love, hopefully, don't absorb the shit you don't love and you copy and you kind of regurgitate what you love and in your kind of early ages of Facebook toddler period of artistic language it's kind of naive and it's like you know I used to joke about it but it was true Bowen would go away and like listen to Radiohead and then come into practice and just start playing Radiohead songs and I'm like what the fuck are you doing? We're not ready ahead. But you have to go through those processes of finding out your own language before you can kind of amalgamate everything you love into your own dialect. And that just is where we were around brutalism. But brutalism was cathartic. That was the explosion of where my mum dying was a catalyst for me realising that I wanted to please everyone too much. And the more you try and please your audience and want them to want you, the more dislocated you are from expression. Because you're, you're just constantly worrying about what it is that you think is good. You know, everyone loves that band, so I should sound like that band. Whereas really, to be loved and people, when, when they really look up to people, when they look up to Nick Cave or fucking Kirk Cobain or whoever it is those kind of like people that are like worshipped is you want to be that person because they're free of the shackles of kudos those people do not give a fuck about kudos they don't care about being loved they want to be loved but they have the idiosyncrasy and the bravery to just be in their art And that's what's inspiring, and that's what's loved by people, you know? And my mum dying really encouraged me to just be like, fuck it, I don't care anymore, I'm just going to do me. And then joy was kind of a reaction to brutalism, because it was the next period in my life where after my mum died, I had to pick up the pieces, and it was a document of that. And I realised that I was kind of taking a lot on, So the art had to be more... I used sloganeering and I used catchphrases and I used kind of nursery rhymes-type lyrics and, and that kind of Orwellian way of just taking something and putting it into one phrase. Because I had to, because I was collecting myself. I was regrouping and trying to fix my life and put it out there. And me doing that, making it, simplifying it and putting it out with as little faff as possible helped me move forward. So that's what joy was. This album is a reaction to joy because this is the next period in my life. And the influences are just where I'm at right now, which is um, really, again, to, to react from joy is, is to accept that I'm now not who I was three years ago when we wrote Joy and I'm, I'm, I'm better than I was, as in I'm more well mentally and I understand who I am a bit more I've recovered from losing my mum and losing my daughter I've, I'm recovering obviously but I'm, I'm, a lot, I'm in a lot better place than I was and that clarity is what I wanted I wanted to try and express a sense of unity within and express a sense of clarity as pragmatism to try and build something to work on and move forward. So this album is around the idea of consolidation, self-belief, self-love. Joy was like, right, you know, opening up the conversation of releasing yourself from the confines of like what it is to be beautiful and perfect and realising you'll never be beautiful and perfect if you're chasing a fucking advert because you're not ever going to be that fucking advert no matter how hard you try. The people in the advert will never be the fucking advert. So after Joy, I'm now like, right, well, if I'm going to look in the mirror and say I love myself, I actually need to start doing that. And that's what this album is about. It's about consolidation, self-belief, a momentary acceptance of the self, to really be present and really actually accept who I am and hopefully really accept who you are.
2: I don't know if I can get through here. This chap here, if he can pass the mic on to him. Can't.
1: Don't drop it.
2: How you doing? I'm all
1: right, thanks. How are you? I'm <laughs> nah, not bad. Just wanted to ask, um, I first started listening to Idols when you brought out Brutalism. Sorry then... to hear that. <laughs> but when I started listening to a band, you expand, I started listening to your first EP, which was Welcome, and then it went on to Meet, and then obviously your new album. Was there ever a time that you thought, shit, this might not go anywhere, and... You might give up and you just had to keep going. Was there ever a time that you had to do that and just push through and powering through, and then that's how brutalism and it got bigger, and then you brought out joy and it was even bigger? Like, was there ever a time you thought, this shit, this isn't going to get anywhere? Um, No. No. But that's that's not. That's not because I have some sort of, like, fucking imaginary stab vest where nothing hurts me and I don't have any self-doubt. I've got loads of self-doubt and, like, I've been through self-loathing and drug addiction and alcoholism where I was a real cunt to myself, you know? But with music and what I learned was I was in a privileged position where my dad is an artist. He's a full-time sculptor, and he has been since he quit his job as an art teacher in the 90s, I think. Yeah, after Thatcher. And he taught me from a very young age that success is in the doing. It sounds cliched, but my father lives a miracle. He gets up every morning at six, and he goes to his studio, and he works on something he loves. Builds something that he finds beautiful that is an expression of himself and then he goes home and does it again the next day and that's that's where the magic is for him he hasn't got big exhibitions in london and you know all that shit he just is an artist and that's the success that's where he is he gets to do art all the time and like I, I had to have so many conversations with the band about not looking up and paying attention to what success is and these bands that they don't like who are doing so fucking well. And why aren't the bands that we love doing better and all that shit? And why aren't we doing better? Why aren't we being picked up? Where's the bloody record label signing us for, for? And it was not, never important to me. What was important was being in the room and learning my craft, and then learning my language. And you can do that, and find a place that means that for the rest of your life, you'll be happy. And that isn't going to come from a, a record label. It isn't going to come from sales, from ticket sales. It's from the doing, and truly finding your own voice, and making something that you love, and putting it out into the world and then forgetting about it and making something else like it sounds there's um there's a psychologist who wrote a book called flow his name is mihai Csikszentmihalyi. so I won't bother spelling that but it's called flow you can get it as an audio book and it's about finding true joy is about being present again in the moment, this is a different person, but same idea, is to just find joy in everything you do. Going for a shit, writing a letter, going to work, set yourself goals, be present in the moment and truly find joy in what you do because all you have is now. And with that in mind, if you can find that and actually find a way of making music, if you're a musician or, even if you're not a musician, it's like, doesn't fucking matter like find something you love doing and be with it and time becomes irrelevant now is is relevant you are relevant
0: hey this is josh modell host of the talk house podcast We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android.
4: Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, In an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.
0: Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out.
4: Hey, uh, hi there. How you uh, are you doing? Where are you? I'm here. Oh, yeah, hello. How I'm, hi, Joe. I was wanting to ask you about a little bit about the Downs Festival last year. That was the first time I'd ever been in, in Bristol. And as someone who's been in a band for about ten years, it was just it was sort of amazing. It just made me want to be in a band again, watching how great that atmosphere was. Yeah. It was also the first time I'd been in Bristol. It was also the first time I'd been on Magic Mushrooms. <laughs> not ever. Not ever. First time I've been on Magic Mushrooms in a while. And... Uh, and, um, what does that even mean? Uh, yeah. It's the first time I've done Magic Mushrooms. Well, it's the first time Magic Mushrooms in Bristol. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what it kind of means if it comes down to it.
1: I fucking love you, man. Yeah.
4: Well, I love you too, mate. Honestly, just watching you live just made me want to be in a band again. And it was interesting because I was on holiday. First time in Bristol, I was there for a week and I was actually reading Alan's uh, book as well. So shout outs to Alan. So it was just, I, I just came back refreshed and it was like reading that book and it says, great synchronicity or serendipity. I don't know I know the difference between the two, but it's good to see the two of you on stage. But another thing that happened that made me want to be in a band we just re lit the fire again was, um, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, Danny Nadelko. Yeah. It's a Heavy Lungs. They played after you at the same time as Lauren Hill. And just watching the chaos that they created in the smaller stage was brilliant. So I just wonder if you could tell me a bit about that because I, I didn't ever knew the story. I just heard rumours on the night and I was on mushrooms in Bristol, so I don't remember if any of it was true or any it was real.
1: I have no idea what you want me to say. <laughs> you are, do you want, you want me to tell you what your mushroom trip was like? <laughs> um, the, I, after the show, I suffered from anxiety, or I used to. Um, I don't suffer from anxiety at the moment mainly because I've given up drugs and also therapy and spiritual audio books that I've just thrown out there but at the time uh, I came on stage and I was bombarded by people telling me they'd see me play shows people come up to you and they'll go I saw you at Dundee and that's alright i like, it's cool but When there's 14 people telling you at the same time they saw you at different places, I felt displaced. And uh, I went home and had a panic attack. So, that was my downs. I don't know what else... I I don't know what else... I I didn't watch Heavy Lungs. Heavy Lungs uh, apparently had an amazing show. And they're a really good band and I love them. They are my brothers. Um, so thanks to tell us about your mushroom trip. Just so you know, if any of you do want to come up to me afterwards and tell me that you saw me at a show, please do. It's not a thing, it's just... It was that there was about 14 people all telling me at the same time. None of them were acknowledging each other talking. I find that really fucking weird. Like, after shows, four people will be talking at you at the same time. It's nervousness, it's like a nervous energy because, you know, you're meeting me and you saw me on stage. So just have a look around you next time you talk to me. Don't be shy. Next question. Hi, Joe. All right. Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm
3: I'm rambling. Good. Well, that wasn't actually my question, but... um, (laughs) I wanted to say, first of all, thank you for... Being the voice that you are and speaking about the things that you do. I really, really appreciate that. Pleasure. And I think a lot of people here would feel exactly the same. Um, the, the, the ethics of your music and the things that you talk about are actually the most interesting thing for me. Although I love the music as well. But what I wanted to ask you about was the ethics So you mentioned earlier on about supporting the Food Fighters and whether it sounded like musically, you weren't on the same wavelength as them and you had a reticence about supporting them. But I wondered whether if there was an opportunity to support a band that you didn't ethically agree with, that could offer you 100,000 people a night, whether you would, as a band, refuse that?
1: Absolutely. Like, you gotta, you got to look at the bigger picture. What I meant with the Foo Fighters was, was that I wasn't a fan of the Foo Fighters in terms of I didn't own any of their music. But like, Dave Grohl is notoriously a nice guy and I can vouch for that. I met him and he was a really lovely dude. It's just like, you know, it's like stadium rock. It's just not my thing. But obviously, they've written good songs. And it was a good opportunity to play on a big stage and see how we translated as a band and to get some new people in. And it, you know, it worked. I mean, there's a lot of people there that thought we were dog shit, but, you know, it was a great experience. And we got to meet Foo Fighters, it was great. But I wouldn't be able to realign my my ethics with supporting a band that I disagree with politically, but then it depends, like, I think a lot of people may, may be misconstrued what Joy of an Act of Resistance was about. Obviously, that album is, is from the left-leaning side of politics. Not centre-left, left. But people often thought it was centre-left because we're talking about having a conversation with the opposition. But that's just because I feel that empathy and open-mindedness are the only tools that can kill fascism. And I wouldn't say that I definitely wouldn't perform with an artist that I completely disagree with, but it depends. Like, I wouldn't do it just for the money. And you can't be that short-sighted about a show. Just because they offer you a certain amount of cash doesn't mean that in the long run you won't lose loads of fans because you're playing with a racist. Like, I'm I'm not gonna play with Morrissey Um, just because I don't, I don't feel like, I, I don't think, it's a weird one, man, like, I, I, I played a Michael Jackson song last night, I was DJing, and then I realized, he's a fucking pedophile. <laughs> like, that is weird, isn't it? That's weird that I didn't even put two and two together until I was playing the song. Like, everyone was kicking off about this Gary Glitter song in uh, the Joker film, which is completely overrated and definitely not one of Joaquin Phoenix's best films. But, like, what's wrong with playing a Gary Glitter song in the film? Doesn't get the fucking money. He's a convicted child molester. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I mean, not that I'm, I would play with Gary Glitter, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm just like, it's often people struggle separating the person from their music. But I think you'll find a lot of people that you love are cunts. Like, honestly, like, Jimi Hendrix was a piece of shit to, to women. Like, James Brown was a fucking psychopath. Like, the list is endless of people. John Lennon was horrible to people. He was a fucking sociopath. But people hail him as this because he changed his ways. But everyone can redeem themselves. I was a piece of shit when I was younger. I had political morals, but I was fucking, I was a violent young man with lots of fucking problems. And if I was not forgiven by the people I love, I wouldn't be able to be here right now. So where's the line? I don't go around fucking masturbating in offices and like, you know, I, un- I understand that as, like, I get it. Like, my behavior now has changed. But when I was younger, I was a piece of shit. I was confused and lost and, like, I needed nurturing. I needed help. I, I, was, I, I needed someone to guide me in the right direction. I needed people to forgive me, but also hold me accountable. The problem lies in, like, where does that stop? I mean, Christ... I don't, I, I don't want to say it because it's been recorded, but I've... I've, I've been... A, a lot. And like... I don't know, like, wh- what, what, do you want, what do you want from musicians? The whole point is that we're being honest. Like, you can just not listen to it if... if you disagree with them. Obviously, if they're fucking abhorrent human beings, then boycott, of course. I'm not going to play with someone who's an asshole. But there's a line, you know, and people will make mistakes. And you have to be able to have conversations with those people. Otherwise, they won't change, they won't develop and they won't become better. It's also context, you know, what, what, was, wrong, what was wrong with their situation? What's their background? How can we help them change? Hold them accountable, but forgive them. In the long run, you've got to, otherwise you're just carrying the burden of loads of other people's mistakes. All those, all those amazing musicians that were heavily into drugs would have done some savage shit, you know? But you've got to put that in context and you've got to help them get clean. Otherwise, they're fucked. Am I right? Next.
3: Uh, hi, Joe. Um, I was just going to say, nowadays, when you die, you can get your ashes put into a vinyl if you get cremated. I was just going to ask, if yeah, if you were cremated, what would be your A-side and what would be your B-side and why? It's <laughs> a good question.
1: <laughs> you do realise that I put my mum's ashes in a vinyl, right? It did a limited release of Brutalism, 100 copies with my mum's ashes in it. So I know about that. Uh, A-side would be The Rat by The Walkman. Uh, And B-side would be... Gary Glitter. Uh, B-side would be... I'll come back to you on that. Good question. Thank you. Hello? I don't don't have the mic. (sighs) Hello. Hello? I'm a collector of vinyl, and... um, I'll pay a lot for... Stupid amounts of money for a vinyl, but like ten thousand pounds. That's like it's something else. Like that's just ridiculous. Yeah. For like I mean, but how do you feel about the fact that your mother's ashes are inside in that vinyl and it's going for ten thousand pounds on discogs? Has what? has the world not just gone mad? No. <laughs> I mean it has, but not because of that. I mean it's 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 just someone. Trying to sell it for £10,000. Yeah, but but £4.49 delivery as well is a bit much now, you know? That is fucking magic. I like that. I like. I would, I would expect it handed to me on a silver salver now with you with like a personal, like you know, production of brutalism, you know, now with that. I personally don't care. When we released that limited edition, that was put up on Discogs almost immediately for £10,000. And loads of people kicked off about it. And it's, it's a ludicrous amount of money, but just don't buy it. Like, that's, that's what I think. Like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's, it's not worth it. Like, we sold it. I, I'm not going to sit here and judge someone for overselling something. I put my mum's ashes on a vinyl and sold it for money. There is, there is money there. It's part of capitalism. I can't get on some sort of Marxist pedestal and be like, how dare they? (laughs) Like, the the point is, that I sold it. My point was to try and artistically create a message where my mum's death was a huge part of that album. That's it. So, her death, her ashes, in the vinyl, it's an artistic expression of that. And then we sell it as a thing um, so that people can be part of that. But, Like, it's gone. Like, sentimentalism, again, it's like, it doesn't help. Worrying about the past or some asshole that's selling it for 10 grand, it doesn't matter. It's not important. My mum's life is important. My album, what I do and how I project myself and... All that, those are important things. And just that, it's just a farce. It doesn't matter, you know? Fuck it. Like... I, could, I, I totally understand. I'm not trying to devalue your discipline you, you think it's mental. I do love, I love the fact they've added postage. I do. If I was Duncan Bannantyne, I'd be in. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. You all right, mate? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Cheers for doing this, mate. You're some man. Um. <laughs> I was just wondering, was a, a direct influence on the song I'm Scum?
4: Or was it just, like, a build-up of a lot of different stuff?
1: I can't remember. Uh, I'm Scum, yes. aye. the song, it, it, was there something musically? Like, was there something that happened that you were just like, oh, right, yes, I'm doing this. I see what you aye. mean. I thought you meant musically. You mean lyrically?
2: Aye, lyrically, aye. Yes. Can you tell us about it? No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Um, Jason Williamson from Sleaford Mods. Uh, absolutely not. It's no no no. Uh, there's no need to boo him. There, there's, there's nothing useful about a group of people booing someone who isn't here. Um, also, he's fucking talented. He's just a bit of an arsehole sometimes. But like I fucking love that band. I don't care what he says about me. Um, I'm here right now. I'm in love with my life. Thank you very much for coming. Um, so he, he said a bunch of stuff and he basically he specifically attacked my sincerity and that's something that I struggle with. I don't like being... I mean, I, I, I don't normally give a shit if someone insults me, but someone who tells me that I'm a fucking liar or I'm faking what I'm doing the amount of energy and love I put into this job, or to this, not this job, this, this thing with the people I love and gone through the things I've gone through, I fucking mean everything I do. I'm, I'm not joking. I will not have anyone try and sweep the rug from under what I love and what I've done. I genuinely fucking mean everything I've done. That doesn't mean to say... It doesn't mean to say that I I haven't sometimes made mistakes or, like, not quite got what I was trying to do right. Like, I've fucked up loads. But that's also part of the beauty of it, is that we all get to see the cracks in idols. We get to see the mistakes and enjoy those, because perfection is boring. But um, it was like Roy Keane, when... uh, He got fouled and uh, and totally got fucked up. And the guy screamed in his face and said, you're a fucking liar or something. And then for like a whole season, Roy Keane just remembered that he was told he was a liar. Because he's the kind of guy that doesn't go down. I'm not into football, but I, I just remember reading this story. So he came back the next season and broke the guy's leg. I goes, that's what happens when you call me a fucking liar. So I went round to Jason Iden. Um, but obviously, I couldn't beat him up because his neck's bigger than my fucking thigh. Um, so I thought I'd write a song about it. Um, the idea is that um, I realised that I was powerless in the situation of him attacking me because I was never going to respond. I just, I'm not the kind of person that should or needs to respond. And there's a certain freedom in in just allowing someone who's insulting you to accept that their truth is their truth. You can't control that and it doesn't matter. doesn't mean it's the truth, it's just their truth. If he wants to believe that I'm a charlatan or whatever, I'm pretending to be working class or whatever, he can go ahead. I've not once fucking lied to you guys and I never will.
2: that's his fucking problem. Uh, just... So, just in a quick one, I was just wondering, have you, do you like the album We'll Live and Die in This Town The Enemy? Because I think there's, like, there's quite a few similarities between some of the songs. Um, I tried to sell drugs to them once.
1: <laughs> they were touring with Primal Scream and I was... Is it Primal Scream? I was fucked up. Honestly, it was, it was my cocaine years. Um, anyway, the enemy. Don't know. Never listened to their album. Sorry. Um, but yeah, the 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 point of the story was my reaction was to celebrate insults that are thrown your way and accept them as someone else's truth and turn them into something beautiful. Thanks for your question. Hi, you're really here. Hi. Ah, hello. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what you think about. In terms of young bands starting out, like, especially social media just kind of drowns everything out. Like, young bands, like, we just can't get people coming to our gigs, essentially. How, outside social media,
2: what can you really do to actually get people coming when people aren't going out and buying records or whatever else?
1: My advice, if my daughter was to start a band, I mean, she's one, (laughs) but I'll use her as an example. What I'd say, I think there's no point... Every band's different, every band has different avenues to go down and different mistakes to make. And Some people use the internet really well, some people don't, blah blah blah. The rule, The golden rule for me, and I'm sure you'd agree with this one, is that if you're playing to five people, play like it's your last gig on Earth. Next time there'll be ten. So there's ten people, play like it's your last gig on Earth. Then there'll be twenty. Then there'll be forty. Then they'll be 80. Then you'll be at Alexandra Palace. And that's it. <clears throat> Honestly, it's that it... All, all the, the, the myriad of crap that you're surrounded by, your power is in your music and its performance, whether you perform it or not. So if you don't perform your music live, it's just in whether people connect with it as a record and distributing it out, To as many people but if you want to commit to the next 10 years you'll be able to build a loyal fan base that will come to your shows because you've done it via word of mouth and just building that audience from 10 to 20 and it doubles and then it quadruples and then it tenfolds and it will happen unless you're shit you're not you're not but I like beyond that like You know, I I, I genuinely would just play the game of the internet as much as you want, but if you do it that way, you'll have people that are there for life. Because you built that as a relationship and a dialogue with people, and that is a different kind of fan, because it's it's a fan that you're a fan of. You're fans together. That's the beauty of live music. Cool.
2: Hello. Uh, hi. Uh, hi, how you doing? Um, This is, just want to say, this is like a fucking fever dream to me right now. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask about, are there any Scottish bands that has influenced you in any way? Like, obviously, there's Primal Scream, Frightened Rabbit, there's Twilight Sad. Even on an emotional level, has there been, like, any Scottish song that's, like, related to you in some way and you've thought, okay, I'm going to use this, I'm going to take this and kind of yeah. Sure.
1: Yeah, it's a bit lame because they're here tonight. Um, Daddy's Gone was transformative for me uh, lyrically, and uh, we actually talked about it earlier. And there's pockets of time where lyrics cut through the ether of a million songs and change the perspective forever and that's one of those songs Idlewild Mogwai (laughs) Primal Scream Uh, yeah I mean there's loads I don't know not any specific like current influences but to be honest I've got to a point where I'm influenced but I'm in love with it so much it doesn't I don't know it's influencing me anymore you know like I think you just the more you enjoy creating stuff, the less you're concerned with how much things are affecting you from the outside. Like, there's nothing wrong with being affected by other bands, and but I don't know. Like, I'm sure everything I love, affected, you know, influences me somehow. Scotland has a lot of good music, a lot more than Wales. <laughs> this is where I'm from. When you are playing, Jews have brought a lot of bands through
3: that I've now became following. And when they're putting
0: on support bands, I'm following them. And I'm following their support bands and their support bands. Use introduced me to Fontaine's DCs. So fucking, so many bands, man.
1: Purposefully done, drunk, and passed over. Oh, yeah, thanks very much.
3: I want to ask you, you were were at the Barlands and you you did covers like Mariah Carey and Celine Dion. Are they like, you know, why?
1: (laughs) Two things. One, is that they're not covers. They're just me and Bowen singing them to each other. Secondly, why the fuck not?
4: No, no exactly, that's what I was saying. I, I loved it, it's amazing. No. I, uh, no we, we're, we're, and also... So
1: i got, I, got, I got an actual answer before you come at me with another question. Is that um, we do it to break the bullshit behind being on a stage. There's a danger, you know, it's, it's quite narcissistic, isn't it? Me sitting here talking to you guys with a microphone, getting paid for it, doing Q&As. It's like being on stage with a band. It's really easy to forget that you're all just five boys wearing men's suits, you know? Just enjoying yourselves. So we try and break that kind of mythology of the rock god because it's bullshit, it doesn't exist. And and also try and get away from the punk thing by singing Mariah Carey. It's also a classic tune, you know, and it, I think it should be listened to all year round, not just for one month, for the year. What else do we sing at Barrowlands? What's your fucking problem uh, with it? No,
3: no, I don't have a problem, <laughs> I was just asking you. I'm joking, um, I'm
1: joking, I'm joking. What was your other one?
3: Yeah, something was thinking quite incongruous from, I, I love Mariah Carey and Celine Dion and your music Thank you. Um, And my first question before all this was: uh, what does it feel like to play Glastonbury? And are you playing this year?
1: (laughs) Uh, It was all right, and no. Um, No, Joe, we're not playing Glastonbury this year because we're going to be headlining it next year. Unless, of course, Mariah Carey. No, um, so we're not playing this year. No, definitely not. Uh, we are doing another festival. I really wanted to go and just take mushrooms with that guy. Um, but yeah, Glastonbury was something that had built up in my head. I went for nine years before we played. And every year I begged our booking agent to try and get us to play. And they didn't. And it just felt like it was the perfect time to play for the first time on the stage that I love the most, at the time I love the most, it just aligned, everything aligned. And it's something that I will take with me to my grave as a beautiful thing. That and Lance.
2: Hello. All right. All right. Um, how do you think like, the tour kind of life has changed you as a person, like mentally and whatever else?
1: Um, I don't know. Um, I try not to overthink, because to do that, would, I'd have to think about what I'd be like if I wasn't touring. I know that I'm in a better place now. It's taught me patience and... It's taught me balance. One of the things that you can't do at 35 whilst touring is be imbalanced because you get ill really quickly and you're shit on stage and it's just not very good for anyone. So it's taught me balance and it's taught me patience. Yeah. And also that like every European country has a different concept of what a toilet is. Every country is completely different. There's no order to fucking toilet manufacturing. They're all so different. I just think that's weird. It's like a common thing. You just think that it, there would be one kind of toilet, but every European, every country in the world seems to have a different kind of toilets.
2: Uh, first off, I'd like to thank you for doing this. And also, are you sure? Uh, the no, toilets. The toilets. Yeah, they're, they're very important. Uh, so when you were talking about the importance of examples people have given you about how to make up the patchwork of your mental health, eh, there's something that you said in an interview like two years ago about how you always wanted to come across as as truthful as you could be. And tonight you've kind of exemplified that. And that's something that I've taken on board. And I'd like just basically say thank you for that. And the second thing is what experience have you had in your kind of musical career that you think that Joe at 15 would be just most, find it so unbelievable that you got to experience that?
1: That's a good one. Shit. Being in a studio with Mike Skinner would be one. I was a big fan of the streets when I was 16 and I then ended up, you know, working with him. And working with other people, you get to a level where you can just be like, I really want to work with that person. And they're like, yeah, see, yeah, we'll get in contact. There's something really cool about that. I think working with people, you know, like meeting, like you meet people at festivals backstage and it's kind of, it's all right. I always find that it's, it's important to meet your heroes and see what they really like. But working with them is another level. I think that's... Fucking amazing. Uh, I can't say who. Yet. Yeah. But yeah. That and touring itself is, is magic. Just being able to travel the world with your mates. That is pretty cool, isn't it? Has anyone got any good questions? Oh. I'm joking. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a joke, fucking hell. Anyone? Yeah, you. Is there any events in my life that have brought up the idea of toxic masculinity? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, yeah loads, man. I think grief, grief is um, something that's quite a violent, tra- like post-traumatic stress thing with everyone. Like I thought that I was quite an open man that was in touch with his feelings, and I thought I was quite honest about that. But when losing my old dear and my daughter, I was in conflict with the fact that I struggled with how I really was feeling. And I found myself saying shit like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. Why was I saying that? And I'll just, you know, I'll go back to work, I'll start touring again, it'll be fine, you know. Trying to fix things around me instead of fixing myself. So yeah, it came in that form. It also comes in the form of violence. Like, I had a very loving childhood, but I still found myself fighting a lot still found myself in trouble a lot and that came through a, a lack of expression and, a, and a, like a, a fucking overwhelming sensation of boredom and I, there's something that's misaligned with me as, as a man where I thought I was a lot better than I was and I was actually I think the more ignorant you are of how affected you are by the pressures of what it is to be a man the more kind of stereotypically toxic you are. Not necessarily outwardly, but toxic to yourself, you know, suffocating yourself of how you truly feel and things like that. And also being toxic outwardly, being an asshole to people. I was a really passive-aggressive boyfriend when I was younger. I was very scared. But I had abandonment issues. And I would be kind of jealous and rubbish to girlfriends, you know. And that was all through just not accepting that I was terrified of being left alone. Because I was, you know, I was a small boy still, because I hadn't recovered from losing my mum when she was 16 and she had a stroke. I didn't come to terms with that, so I stayed 16. I stayed this little scared young man that just wanted to be held by his mum, all the way through till, you know, a lot older. So these are all things. It's not about beating yourself up because you're a man and you're doing things wrong. It's about accepting that maybe you're just not being kind to yourself and you're allowing other people to dictate how you want to be as a man. Because you can be a man, that's all right. It's just don't allow other people to dictate how you decide to love yourself and go forward and be productive treat other people with respect so yeah, I think any sort of traumas, you can fall into the habits of what other people expect of you, which is bullshit thank you okay, well
3: well, this has been great and uh, one more question and then I think
1: we've got to wrap it up Uh, It was just to ask, what would your Desert Island disc be? Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Good choice. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think Astral Weeks... It's my favourite album. But then you you don't want to, like... You don't want to get bored of your favourite album. I'll tell you what, something that I really don't like, like Gabba. Like a Ministry of Sound gabba mix, like 60 songs, so it's really long, and it makes time go slower. That's for weeks, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming, everybody. A big, a big
4: round of applause for Joe Talbot.
1: Thank you, Alan. Yeah.